We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 10 this morning, verses 19 through 25. The Bible provided for you, that would be page 1009. Be in prayer for the Stratton family. This is uh, the last Sunday we will have Abe and Liz with us as worshipers every Lord's Day. No doubt we'll see them again, but we send Abe Stratton out today, and he'll begin preaching a month from now, so he and his family will have about a month to to go to church together each Lord's Day, just like you all granted to me when I first came here, a month to go to church and to be encouraged with the Word and the voices of the saints, and not, not quite yet to be responsible for the preaching, but so pray for the family that they would be encouraged today and they would be encouraged in the days ahead. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the living, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Therefore, that's the first word in our text this morning, so let's begin where our author starts, right there. There's a neighborhood going up around the corner from our home, and I drive by it every day. Some time ago, the diggers and excavators carved out the shape of the neighborhood, made sure the water would flow to all the right places. Flat spots where houses would go. It sat there for some time. And more recently, foundations have been poured. More foundations and more foundations and framing up of the foundation before that. And then it only takes a couple days, it seems. If if I'm out of town for a couple days, I might show up and a house is built on top of a foundation. Uh, They're very quick. At least the framing and And whatever else goes into making it look like a house, there's a lot more to it on the inside, no doubt. Builders, they're good at that. They're real good at getting things in the right order. I've never seen a house go up and then the foundation team show up. Like, wait, you you all put the house up first. Could you move that real quick? That wouldn't even work. Uh, Because you need to build the house on a foundation. Some of us in our Christian lives obsess over the paint And we keep painting over cracks, and we have foundation issues. Um, Some of us are trying to do Christianity and do religion and do God, and we have no foundation at all, and it doesn't seem to work. We can't get any traction whatsoever. Well, this morning's passage comes to us in just the right place of the book. Uh, Just like builders are good at getting things in the right order, naturally, of practical necessity. Whatever time it takes for that foundation to get poured and set will be taken before the framing and the rest of the house goes up. Now, in the Christian life, it's like that too. We concern ourselves first with the source of life and then with a way of life. For it is through connection with life himself, the living God, and it is through that new and living way that we become connected to that source of life that we find the strength and the energy and even the will to live accordingly. Now, the Christian life has a certain order to it, almost like the building of a house. And, 
And our author has this passage right where he has it on purpose. This passage right here, verses 19 through 25, forms one of two bookends to the main theological argument of the book. Turn back with me to chapter 4. I just want to show you the other, the other uh, bookend. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. <clears throat> Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, now back to chapter 10. That passage and this passage share some eight linguistic connections, thematic connections. Whereas that last passage ended with an exhortation for us to draw near, this passage calls us at the head of its exhortations to, to draw near. Now they say in, in giving a talk, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell it to them, and then tell them what you told them. I think that's how it goes. Um, it can make for, for boring preaching to some extent. Sometimes things show up later or they're led to. There's different types of talks, inductive, deductive. But at least the preacher or the teacher or the talker needs to know where they're going and to set it up right and to get through it clearly and to land on the other side having known and having his readers know precisely what has just happened. And everything doesn't need to be summarized, but... But bookends make sense, a way in and a way out. Well, this book has a kind of a long introduction of a couple chapters, one through the better part of four. And chapters four through ten are the body of his argument that Jesus is our great high priest. And the first movement of that, where he has gone and that he has been installed as priest king, and the kind of offering that he brings for us so that we know we go with him. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and our passage today form a bookend. We'll get this. Chapters 11 through 13 are not uh, several chapters of closing greetings. You get closing greetings at the end of a letter. Their application, if you will, the implications of these things he has argued for. If one through four and a half is the introductory material, and then five through ten is that theological argument, the body, then 11 through 13 is the nitty-gritty, we might say, getting down into the weeds of life. And it comes at the right time, after all of this foundation work that has been laid. And it's reflected even in the shape of our passage here. You can sense the movement from the theological argument to the practical, although he will never leave the theology behind, as we'll see. that he begins with a summary of what he has argued for, all that they have, all that they possess as those who are in Christ. Verses 1, 19 through 21. We have, we have, and since we have these great possessions, therefore let us, verse 22, let us, verse 23, let us, verse 24. Even moving from the, from the more worshipful theological to the practical, let us, the last one there, stir one another up to love and good works, good deeds built on the foundation of the doctrine which he has expounded and explained for us over so many chapters. And so in the coming weeks, we'll get to cash in that work that we have done. And the, the thought categories and the vocabulary and the ideas and the teaching that we've invested in will start to pay off in very practical terms. Maybe not as practical as some of us would like or expect, which I'll explain before the sermon is over, but practical Nevertheless, theology always leads to life, a way of life, 
And a true Christian way of life always flows from doctrine and theology. These things cannot be pulled apart. Now, some texts and some sermons may move you with that theology into worship of God. Let us draw near to Him. This passage will do that. Some some of our theology and doctrine will more naturally move us into convictions and decisive commitment to truth. Well, you'll get a little bit of that here. Hold fast our confession. And other doctrinal truths and theology, and really all of it does all of this to some extent, moves us to action toward one another, with one another. And in this passage, we'll do that too. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good, good deeds. Good deeds is getting very detailed. Or you could say the heart and the mind as it fixes on truth and in the hands as you get busy with the Christian life. Although I find that division somewhat cheesy and reductionistic, it can be, it can be helpful. Our whole commitment to doctrine and all that we believe is for all of us, for all of our lives. The whole life transformed by all the truth that is in Jesus. And this passage sits on a pivot from doctrine to life. And just as the first part, first 10 chapters haven't ever let us get away with thinking this shouldn't lead us into worship or into conviction or into action. So the next chapters will not let us leave behind the things that we, we believe. Nevertheless, there is a movement. There is an order of things, foundations before framing, way before decorations. Let's not let our Christianity be just about the decorations the exactly how we go about this or that in the Christian life. Our way of life as Christians flows from the new and living way open to us in Christ. Two possessions, three movements to the Christian life. We'll begin with two possessions first two verses are a summary for us, a reminder. He's gathering our attention. Therefore, since, and what he's about to say, he's already said, but this is a nice little summary. Since we have confidence to enter and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, maybe you have great possessions in this life. Uh, Good for you. Who doesn't want great possessions? Enjoy them, be generous with them, give thanks to God for them. Don't be ashamed of having them. Don't live for them. Some of you don't have many possessions in this life. There's no, uh, there's no check at the door for the kind of car you have or the kind of clothes you have. Not at all. No, if you're a Christian, you have two possessions, according to this passage. Two precious, indestructible possessions. The first one is access to God, and the second one is an advocate before God. Access to God, verse 19 through 20. Access to where? Well, to enter the holy places, it says. Enter the holy places, and as we keep reminding ourselves, and as we must remind ourselves every day, we don't belong in the holy places. We are sinners, We were banished from the holy place of the Garden of Eden with Adam and the rest of humanity, and we don't deserve to be back in that place, hence the flaming swords guarding the way back in. That's just not not just to guard God's holiness, but it's to protect us from total destruction should we enter back in because of God's holiness and our sin. We didn't belong inside the most holy place when, when the Lord set up the tabernacle and the tent through with Israel. Well, the high priest could go in once a year, and that's it. But here we have access to the holy places. And it's a bold and a confident and assured access to God. And in this sense, in this sense, Christian, God's still working on you, yes. Jesus will come, finish what he started, yes. 
But in this sense, you have already arrived spiritually. You become a Christian, you're born again, your faith is in Jesus, you believe, you have access, and you have access, full access. There aren't levels of access. All the access to God is here for you to take advantage of and give thanks to Him for and rejoice in and pursue at all times. But you don't feel holy? Well, you have been sanctified and set apart by God for Him, by His Holy Son. But you are still a sinner. And you have sinned in great ways. So how is it that we can have this confident and bold access? Well, we are reminded because we need the reminders how it's possible. Verse 19, halfway through, it's possible by the blood of Jesus. There's no going to God and being received in prayer or coming to church and having him receive your worship apart from the blood of Jesus. And that's why he's labored, the author has so strenuously to clarify how it is that the blood of Jesus does this for us. It does this for us something like how the sacrifices of bulls and goats did this for us under the old covenant where an animal would be killed and the blood would be sprinkled on the people and the covenant at the establishment of the covenant and sprinkled in the holy place sacrifices with blood representing the life of the animals and the death of the animal for the forgiveness of the sinner allowed a high priest to go in and out once a year. But the blood of Jesus is better than that. And so as you watch that system on repeat, you kind of get the idea and you also get the idea that we're going to need something better here and Jesus shows up as something better. And his blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. Those couldn't take away sin anyways. It was a teaching tool. There was actual access, but of such limited kind that it created a hunger and a need and an instruction for what Jesus would provide. So by his blood, we come boldly and confidently. And through this new and living way, for he, he died... His flesh, his body was crucified on the cross, which is the body being his, the way to God for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. I think that's what that means. And the curtain in the tabernacle is irrelevant now for the way is open. The curtain was torn as Jesus was on the cross. Jesus was buried. He was raised. He ascended and he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. And where he is, you are, spiritually speaking. His access is your access. And so, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us, let us draw near and hold fast our confession and stir one another, one another up. We have full access, not a season pass, but a full access. Not access up to one gate or one fence, but all the way, all the way in. And that's enough to show up to church to be reminded of on a Sunday, but we have a lot more. Here's something else we have. We have an advocate, verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, well, what does that mean? All ten chapters we've been through so far. That's what that means. What kind of high priest? Well, a high priest who is sympathetic with us for he is human. We just read that in chapter 4. He sympathizes with us for he has been where we are. He has been on the ground with us. And he remains fully human, though glorified. He's a priest that sympathizes with us. He's like us, like the Old Testament priests were like the people. And so they could sympathize and understand 
the people. And that was helpful in their ministry among the people. But Jesus comes as a great high priest and he is without sin. But that actually shouldn't intimidate us about him. But we consider that he was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. He, it's not that he can't relate with us because we're sinners and he's not. It's that he bore up under every kind of temptation. In fact, temptations that were suited to his nature as the God-man. He gets temptations suited to our nature. He gets the temptation to give up. He gets the temptation to shrink away from what he knows is true. To leave off his relationship with his father. To leave off the plan because no one around him gets it. And everyone around him accuses him of being out of his mind. The crowds shouted crucify. One of his own betrayed him. He understands what it's like to be under the pressure and the temptation to leave off obedience. To leave off believing. And so he can sympathize with you in your temptation to leave off trusting God's word and leave off believing. But thank God he never gave in to sin. And so he can sympathize with us and remain a great priest for us. He not only sympathizes with us as one who is human, but he intercedes for us as one who is in heaven. They're ever living to intercede for us. We will have to find out from him all that he prayed for us and all the prayers he fixed for us and all the advocacy that he made for us in heaven. But just know that he is good and busy on your behalf. You personally, yes, every one of his brothers and sisters. Well, that's the kind of advocate we have. We have access. We have an advocate. And these are two wonderful and indestructible possessions that you have in Christ. By faith. And in the Spirit. But that's just on the way to these exhortations. These three lettuces. This is the salad of the Bible. That's got to get that joke out of the way. The, the Hebrews is full of these, let us, let us, and let us. I remember being at a pizza place maybe 15 years ago and hearing over the intercom, uh, James, your salad is ready. And I said, Christy, never let me become that guy. <laughs> and now I pretty much always get a salad. <laughs> Especially when I'm out to eat with Dan Kruver, because he always gets a salad. Some people eat better than you, you know, and it's good to be around them. Well, this is good eating right here. And this is the kind of thing we hold out to each other. We'll see why being together and eating together under God's word is good for us. Let us draw near and let us hold fast our confession and let us stir one another up. Consider how to stir one another up. I'll draw attention to that word consider here shortly. Three movements for the Christian life. That's one way to think of it. Verses 22 through 25. Sometimes I look at one of my kids sleeping on the couch and I, I actually just make sure they're breathing. There's no reason to think they're not breathing. They just don't look alive. And uh, they're always breathing so far. Well, you want, to wonder if, you want to wonder if someone's alive, you're, you're looking for signs of life, you're looking for movement, so you're looking for breath, maybe their eyes to move, their eyes to open, that would be a clear indication, they, they can see, how many fingers am I holding up, you're looking for a response to stimulus, you're going to pinch them, if they don't look like they're breathing, hit them. I'm not trying to be funny. Um, but you get the idea. You get the idea. There's movement. Well, for the Christian, there's movement. There's movement. And we could even say from this passage, there's three, three movements. Three movements 
by which we can recognize life, three movements to engage in life and energize the Christian life, three movements to give ourselves to, three movements for the enjoyment of life from God. The first is a movement toward the Father, movement toward the Father. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the movement, the direction of faith. It's the direction of faith. Draw near with a true heart in a full assurance of faith. Let's reflect on this, this exhortation, this invitation, this appeal. Draw near, friends, with sincerity. The text says, with a true heart. With a true heart. Our Christian lives and Christian worship is not outward merely. It is not outward in the first place, but inward. Remember that new covenant promise of a new heart that the Spirit puts within us that we read earlier in the service. It was the problem of the old covenant with tablets and the law written on stone that it couldn't get it from the stone into the heart. For the heart to be changed by it. Oh, God was at work and the Spirit was at work. But that covenant was not effective to bring about the transformation that we want at our best. That we need, even if we don't know it. And that God is pursuing in his plan. But because of Jesus' blood, which is effective to accomplish what it was shed for, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Christianity is a heart religion. It's about your relationship with God. It's about nearness to God, growing nearness to Him. And it's first on the list here for good reason. We don't come to Him merely with outward motions, and we seek to come with, without mixed motives, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now pray for that. Pray, God, I confess my wrong motives for being here, for praying, for, for seeking you. Give me a pure, pure motives. And thank you for a heart that can pray this and want this. And come to you in this way that can obey this command. It's not like speaking to a rock or a valley of dry bones that Ezekiel pictured for us. But this command comes to those who have hearts of flesh that respond to God. So we give thanks to God for that. And we ask for help to come with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And we respond to this command on the basis of all of that great theology we've studied about Jesus, our high priest, which gives us the confidence to come and the ability to come with a true heart, inwardly changed, so that we aren't mixed in our motives, so that our outward actions are coming to him and speaking to him in prayer is really from the heart. We aren't we aren't two-faced. These, these days, it's so easy to play different parts for different groups. And even just thinking in the town where I grew up, I went to the same elementary school that my friends went to, then the same middle school, and then the same high school. I moved, and there were two high schools. Moved across the country. Kids went in every direction. And even these days, you work here, and you go to church here, and you may go to school here, and you live over here. Even the structure of life is, is training us to reset and restart and build on what we have with different 
people, but Christianity and the work that God is doing in the hearts of his people by his spirit through Jesus and his work is, is a work that brings about a whole and coherent and whole person, not fragmented. You can be followed anywhere, private to public, to this place, to that, and you're the same person. And you come to him with a true heart, transformed into a worshiping heart, heart that is directed in its affections and attention to the living God, for it has been given life from him. Sincerity. We also draw near with security, full assurance of faith. This means when we pray to God, when we, we come together corporately to pray and to worship Him as a congregation, we ought not come, and this is a command, fickle or flighty. We ought not come with confidence that is based on our emotions. Oh, God is the God of our emotions, and He stirs us to love Him and be thankful and I don't know that I would even call those emotions as we use the term. You may have not gotten very much sleep last night and you may not be very feeling this morning in the worship service and yet you can approach him with a sincere heart and the full assurance of faith. We don't believe in a sensory-based religion or worship like something that Israel had with smells and sights and sounds and, and specific places. We are provoked to worship not by the sounds on Sunday morning, although the voices of the saints edify us, not by the sights, whether it be stained glass or a splash of light on the back or or a nice paint job on the exterior of a church. That's not where worship arises from. And the quality of our worship, the strength of our assurance of faith, is full. And it is not rooted in something sensory, but in something deeply spiritual and historic that Jesus has done for us through his sacrifice on the cross. And so however you feel coming in today, your worship, your, your full assurance of faith is not based on your emotional state or even on your obedience in the last week, but it's based entirely on Jesus' obedience and his sacrifice for you. And the fact that he sympathizes with you and intercedes for you is a great encouragement to this end. Facts that are not contingent upon how your sleep is going or a health diagnosis you got this last week or a sin that you committed. Draw near sincerely. Draw near securely. This one will be a little forced, folks. But it's right there. Draw near sprinkled. Draw near saved. With our bodies, he says, draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Sprinkling in the old covenant at the establishment of the covenant. The covenant sprinkled with blood and the people sprinkled with blood Reminiscent of that covenant cutting ceremony from Genesis where the Lord walked through the pieces, remember. Sprinkled. Well, we've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, if you will, from an evil conscience so that our conscience, although we have sin in the past and although we are sinners, our conscience no longer accuses us and calls us guilty. Or we should shut it down if it does. For we are not guilty in Jesus. For our sins have been paid for. It is not that our sins are nothing to God. 
Oh, they are something and they cost the blood of his son. But we come with full assurance of faith and we can do that because our sins have been completely paid for and so we've been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with with pure water. Oh, thinking about water, you don't want water from Palestine or that's how you say it, Ohio these days. Pray for those people. There's such thing as bad water. But even the best water down here, the purest water, if you were to wash yourself in it or even be baptized in really clean water, it's always clean when we baptize somebody. Uh, that physical water isn't doing the work. This passage may, may call to mind for the original hearers and for us um, our baptism, and, and that's an encouraging image and a moment in our lives, part of our discipleship, when we go public with our faith and we join ourselves publicly to a local church with all the responsibilities and privileges that come with that. It's that moment in which we are really online. And baptism pictures our union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection so that by union with him we're, we're, we're dead to our sin and we're raised to, new, to a new life. So whether this was intended to, to call to mind water baptism or not, it is that Old Testament sprinklings and washings that are in mind here. Remember that passage from Ezekiel that we read together as a congregation earlier in our service. I will sprinkle, this is the new covenant promise, clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the foundation for promises like that is the full forgiveness of sins. So it's this, the blood of Jesus, the sprinkling clean from an evil conscience and the body's washed with pure water. All of that is shorthand, pictured in baptism, but shorthand for the whole work that God does through Jesus' death and resurrection for you. That whole work of full forgiveness of sins and inward transformation so that you and I can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with, with pure water. Now that's good news for us. That's the first movement of the Christian life. And it starts in the right place, doesn't it? It's a movement toward God. It's the movement and the direction of faith. Our faith is not directed at each other. Our faith is not directed at a church. Our faith is not directed at anything. Our faith is directed at the Lord himself. And we say draw near to the Father For it has been said that the book of Hebrews and the study of the Trinity would be kind of like studying the life of a fish on land. Um, Sometimes when we're looking at uh, a teaching on the Trinity, we're listening for particular things and types of verses. And the Apostle Paul has given us more material and more passages and, and he's put them together in verses and paragraphs, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the book of Hebrews is, it is not like studying the life of a fish on land, studying our triune God. For we have plenty of teaching here on the Son that is unique, as superior to the law and to Moses and to the old priesthood who brings a better covenant and promises and blood and access. Or the Spirit who appears speaking and testifying and bearing witness, His particular work to to activate and to apply Christ's work and the word, moving salvation history along and sweeping you up into it by breathing new life into you. Particular teaching on the Spirit. But the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who says, you are my Son, the Son who is the radiance of the glory of God. The Son who is our Brother who makes us children by making us his brother. So in drawing near to the Father, it is not that we draw near to the Father over here and the Son is who who knows where. 
No, in drawing near to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit, we draw near to our triune Lord. One God, three persons. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Friends, we are worshipers before we are anything else as humans. And as Christians, we are worshipers of the one true and living God. Second, the second movement for the Christian life. The movement toward the future. Movement toward the future. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The future is the direction of our hope. Yes, we have already come to Mount Zion. We have been saved. And yet, we have not arrived at that heavenly city promised to us. We are promised that a day is drawing near, even if the Spirit has, in the age of the Spirit, has dawned. The, the second movement of the Christian life is a forward-looking movement. It's the direction of our hope. Now, when you hear hope as a Christian... We just have to remind ourselves of this because every time we hear the word in any other context and maybe use it, we mean it differently. Here, hope is not a a vague concept, something shapeless and unspecific or subjective. I hope so. But hope in the Bible is specific, it is defined, and it is objective. Just look at the firmness and the toughness and the certainty of these words in this sentence about hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And that's a very faithful faithfulness. More than our best faithfulness. So friends, hold fast with a firm grip to the confession of our hope. Confession. This word here refers to the confession of the truths that we believe. If you think about our confession of faith as an example of something like this, an articulation of what we believe, that we really believe, our confession of faith as a church, we take that seriously. Our elders on rotation, every two weeks when our elder team meets, another brother gives a 10 minute. Uh, I'm not going to call it a devotional, it's more than that, but it's not quite a sermon, teaches for 10 minutes the rest of the men on a sentence in our confession of faith, and we move article by article through the confession. Instructs us on current challenges and historic challenges to that part of our confession. And then we pray together for you and for our church to firmly believe and live according to that confession. What is your confession? What do you believe? It is enough to say, I believe in Christ. If by Christ you mean what the scriptures say concerning Christ. That one who from all eternity took on flesh, became a man, suffered in our place as the God-man who is crucified for our sins and buried and who is raised from the dead all according to the scriptures and who is seated right now at the Father's right hand. Rehearse that sequence for yourself. You can't take any of that away. You don't need to to be as clear on all of these points of Christ's work to be saved. We will always grow into the knowledge of what he has done. But you have to understand what he did on the cross and what he did in raising from the dead. And confess these things is true. We are a people that confess Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as King, as our high priest and our substitute for sin and our only hope in life and in death. And all of this is something we hold fast to That gives us hope in the face of so much hopelessness. We hold fast to it without wavering. A firm grasp on the truth. 
And so as a church, we're ever growing in our knowledge of truth. It's not just doctrine for doctrine's sake. That's not even, doesn't even mean anything if you know what doctrine means. Doctrine, that is the truth about Jesus, the truth about the living God, the truth about the Spirit's work, the truth about all that it means that we are saved. We're exploring in our elective classes and in Bible studies and on the Lord's Day and in the songs we sing, we're searching out these incredible truths so that we might confess all that God is is for us and all that he has done for us in the gospel. Let us hold fast our confession and we show up every Sunday to keep holding and to hold tighter and to know what we're holding on to and to grow in our hope born of all that glorious truth. If we cut life off from theology, we cut life off from the source of life. And so we hold fast our confession of our hope Not just to live well now, but to hold on until Christ comes. To keep holding on, to persevere, to strengthen our weak legs, and to strengthen our grasp on on Jesus. A firm grip, rooted in firm and solid truth. And that firm and solid truth that we confess, we keep believing Because of the character of the one who gave it to us. For he who promised is faithful. We're holding on to truth as to a rope. And the one holding the rope is the one who is faithful. And who is strong not to let it go. And who threw it for us in the gospel. Jesus is for us an anchor for the soul. But even the imagery of an anchor is only so helpful for we imagine an anchor going down. Rather, Jesus is for us an anchor cast into heaven. And as you hold on to these truths that we confess, so he will not let you go. Hold on with the full assurance of faith that believes in the faithful God who will do all that he has promised. And so all the things that we believe and confess as a church are about strengthening our faith in the God who keeps his promises. So let us hold fast our confession. Let us move ever toward the future with confidence of our hope. Now the third movement of the Christian life now, the third movement is a movement toward One another, movement toward your church family. Verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can imagine in a church where some have stopped coming, some have stopped following Jesus, either for apathy or for for cowardice, unwilling to associate with Jesus anymore, although they were around for a while. It's very discouraging when someone leaves off the faith and falls away. And the habit of some, it's either those who are gone entirely or who are in danger of drifting away and leaving the living God. Oh, but that's why we have to keep coming together so that we don't drift. You and I are essential to God's plan to keep each other with him. And so the second movement of the Christian life is that of toward your church family. And this is the direction of, of love. And it's a command for all of us. Some of us are good at stirring up. It's just the wrong kind of stirring. We're good at stirring each other up to selfishness and unthankfulness and dead works. You know, you can stir each other up to dead works by chastising each other for merely outward things and focusing on mere behavior. Oh, we care what we do with our lives and bodies and tongues and and about good deeds, but there is a root that bears fruit and caring only how things look with our kids or only how things look with one another may just as well be stirring one another up to 
dead works. Oh, there is a biblical place for the rod and for discipline and an orientation of the parent to the behavior of the child as we wire the child's sense of right and wrong to see what's good and reject what's evil. I'm not referring to that. I just mean that we're ever tending toward the matter of the internal things even as we train the internal through the external with our kids. And with one another, it's possible to stir each other up to dead works by caring only ever about what's going on outwardly. Others of us are unwilling to be stirred up. Think about that. If you come and go, you're only here for a moment and then you're, and then you're gone. Uh, you may have to leave. It may be that you couldn't get here a little earlier. There's no rule on how much earlier you have to be here. We're good at being on time. I mean, staying connected, coming to connect. The Lord would have more for us, not less, than what we do from 9.30 till about 10 minutes from now in this room, each Lord's Day. Why is it that you're not stirred up, willing to be stirred up? Could it be an indication that you think you're good to go? That you're not vulnerable to drifting? That you don't need your brothers and sisters? Or maybe you've put in the time. There was a season of life when you were super spiritual and excited about Jesus. Now you're kind of hit and repeat on going to church. But your excitement about this, that was for your 20s or your college years or, or back when your kids were little. Oh, this is for all of us. All of us need to stir each other and all of us need to be stirred. Isn't it a great image? Stirring up. So let me expound and encourage with you at the end here by reflecting on these last verses with an exhortation for you to stir one another up. Brothers and sisters, stir one another up thoughtfully, with great and careful thought. He says, consider. That's the main verb. Consider. In other words, a sermon might be immediately for you and the exact thing you're going through. But you're never to think, oh, that's not exactly for me today because it's for the person next to you and you're to stir them up. So, we all need every sermon and every bit of it, but some of us, it lands on in a very direct way on a given Sunday, and as it is, you need that sermon in this material because it's material for your job as a church member to speak the word of Christ to your brothers and sisters. As you, it's material for stirring. Consider. Stir one another up thoughtfully, and this thoughtful stirring requires personal attention to one another, thinking about each other, Listening to each other, planning to stir one another, one another up, even affirming each other. He will do this in this book, how he's seen that they rejoiced in the plundering of their property, and he's stirring them up with encouragement in that way, based on what God he's seen God do in them. And this thoughtful stirring should be provocative. This word stir is a is a an uncomfortable word. It's the word that was used when Paul and Barnabas departed because they had a sharp disagreement. Or Paul was provoked at the idols at Athens before he preached the gospel. It's not a word that leads us to be mean to each other or direct in ways that are unhelpful, but thoughtful and responsive to each other and careful and personal provocatively encouraging, could we say that? Calculatingly, provocatively encouraging. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as I come to preach on the Lord's day, my job is to herald Christ and all that he is for you from this text and all that that means for you for your life. But it's a lowercase all. Because you have a job to pick up where the preacher or the teacher leaves off. Part of my job is to preach to you to go home and consider how these things that you and I have heard from the word mean love for and good works in our daily life. Even in getting to know a friend or in the course of counseling a church member, it takes long listening to finally figure out, aha, that's it. We are all so different. 
And isn't God kind to give us brothers and sisters who know us and know you a lot better than I know you? So make sure that you've got brothers and sisters that know you that well. Stir one another up thoughtfully in personal and productive, pr- provocative ways. Let us stir one another up, secondly, congregationally. Congregationally. You know, the redwoods out in California, these massive trees might be the tallest kind of tree in the earth. Really shallow roots, but they're all knit together. And so it is with us. You may feel like you've got shallow roots, but you're not alone. You're knit together with the rest of your church family. Congregationally, big C on the Lord's Day, chiefly this main gathering on Sunday morning where we hear the whole church with one voice and hear the word preached and all of that. But in our own church, we've thought in careful ways that are hopefully intentional and intergenerational and minimal, that's an important word, about how to structure the rest of the formal things that we do as a church. So you might have a prayer meeting every week and then small groups every week and something else every week. We've put We've gathered all of our eggs, if you will, on Sundays. The Lord's Day we give to His people. And on Sunday afternoons, if you're new to Heritage, this is how it'll work. Every other week, we're in each other's homes for hospitality and encouragement and praying together and shepherding groups. And it's not all that the Lord would have for us, hardly. But it is a a place to provoke each other and encourage each other and stir each other up a jumping off point for deeper friendships, a place to practice these kinds of things with one another. Once a month, we have a prayer meeting where we focus on praying and responding to God and speaking to God in prayer. And we learn from each other how to pray and what to pray for from one another. And every other month, we meet to eat and share about our our shared mission together as a church and family in family meetings. Well, there's a number of ways that we are organized to provoke each other with the Word of God. But you have to go home and consider, and this is the minimal programming part. It's why we've gathered everything on Sundays, but leave you alone for the most part with the rest of the week. So that you've got space to consider how to stir one another up and then get about that in very particular ways, which you are very good at. I don't have to talk about hospitality from the pulpit or delivering meals or caring for each other when you're sick. Our elders marvel at all of the particular and unique ways in which you are busy loving each other and stirring each other up to good works. This is just to encourage you to to more of the same. And if you don't know what I mean, just get to know more people in our church and you will get to know more very secret, private often ways in which this very command is being fulfilled. I see it. And I thank God for it. Keep it up, friends. Stir one another up thoughtfully, congregationally, habitually. Make a habit, if you will, of being here on Sunday morning, especially. To neglect this gathering in particular in our church is a matter of disobedience to the Lord. There are reasons why you may not be able to be here, travel or sickness, but Life should be arranged in order to be with us. And to neglect this gathering ongoingly, and this is not something we've been good at, but that our elders are, are moving and now to be good at, is church discipline for failing to attend church. Often we don't know where someone went or they're not replying to an email and we, we aren't sure if they're disobeying God in some particular egregious sin or not. Maybe in the past, we've wanted to hope the best and we've led you in hoping the best. Well, you'll start to hear things like not replying, not coming. Right here, as is the habit of some. And what's at stake? It's a fatal mistake not to be here over and again. And so in loving you, we pursue you to just show up. Just showing up is real obedience to Jesus. And just showing up is real strength to obey him. Habitually, be here, friends. And finally, expectantly, even all the more as we see the day drawing near, do we stir each other up. So, don't forget, Christian, your two possessions and the three movements of the Christian faith. A movement in faith toward God, a movement toward one another. 
and a movement toward the future in hope. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this good word and for this great encouragement and that you've made it possible for us to hear these commands as as good from you because you have given us everything that we need to keep them. You've given us these glorious possessions through the blood of your son and the new and living way he opened for us. So would you give us the assurance of our hope and would you fill us up with assurance now as we sing to you. You're a glorious God, you're a majestic God, and you are a merciful God to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.